I got one of two things I can do this morning. I can, um, I can continue with our series on the principles of the doctrine of Christ, and I can kill a service, which I, I really want to do just to show you what it feels like. Because if, if you can recognize what it feels like to be in a dead service, you'll understand what the anointing feels like even when it's stomping all over your hidden sin. So I'm really tempted. In fact, I thought about setting an alarm and saying, all right, let's go just five minutes down the wrong path. And uh, we don't want to set that for five hours. That would be horrible. <laughs> I don't know. Some Christians live five years on the wrong path, so what's five hours? So I thought about maybe I would do that, but I was just taught too well by Pastor Vaughn years ago how to stay, find the will of God in a service and stay there. You know, you might misquote scripture, you might exegete inaccurately, but the overall picture is you connect with the heart of God. But it, you also have to understand uh, that when we do deal with your sin, and we've done a lot of sin dealing with lately, that as a pastor, I deal with a lot of different people. You know, 200 or so, probably 50, 60 families, and there's always drama in some family. If I deal on marriages, you're not the only marriage that's coming to me dealing with the issue. There's probably four or five marriages under the same attack. Same with maybe your children. If your child's acting weird or squirrely, and we don't really have those issues, thank God, but if your kid's acting weird, there's probably two or three other kids that are acting weird, and maybe they've come to me. And so sometimes you adjust your sermon for the problem at hand, and that may feel like you're getting picked on or like, I just talked to pastor about this yesterday on a phone call. And now he's preaching it. You might have been the straw that broke the camel's back because you were the third phone call I had yesterday with the same area. So I, part of what I want to do is preach the word of God, but in the wrong direction so you can see what it feels like to have a dead, dry religious service so that you might better trust me in the future when I leave my notes and deal with something you gave me a phone call about last night, even though it feels like I'm betraying you because I'm teaching on to this morning what you talked to me about last night. You ought to rejoice and say, <laughs> now admittedly, I don't always get the details right, and I may not fully hear your message, but you probably held some of the details from me to save face. So I can only make judgments based on what's revealed to me. Same like in a court of law. That's why you cross-examine. And I make mistakes. And I appreciate you guys being very gracious and merciful with me through my mistakes. Because I'm not perfect. I'm just the one that gets judged worse than you do if I make big mistakes. So I kind of am tempted to just let's go down the wrong path for five or ten minutes and just watch how we can like sled on concrete. Because <laughs> I know the message God wants this morning. And I... I'm excited about it, but I just want to ruin the service for a little bit. <laughs> no, really, I really do. So I want you can, so you can trust me when I preach against your sin the next time. And instead of you saying, he's only saying that because I called him, I'm never going to call him again. I, I want, like right now, I know of a bunch of pornography in the church. And we're not going to deal with it. I know of some drug addiction in the church or drug abuse, substance abuse. I'm not going to deal with that. I know of some marital issues, but we hammered that so hard last week. Those those worms aren't coming out of that hole for a while. <laughs> I got women wanting to be better husbands because we preach so hard about being better husbands. <laughs> you know, we dealt, I don't even remember what we dealt with Sunday night, but it was pretty harsh too. Wednesday night was scorched earth. There was nothing left. We just nuked the planet three or four more times just because we had extra arsenal. We wanted to fly home empty on. So I just want, because this is, this is a relationship where we have to trust each other. And so there are times when I get up and you're like, here he is harping on this again. But I, I want you to know that I know how to tank a service and go the wrong direction. 
But I also want you to know that when I do teach on your sin, if the Spirit of God is there, you've got to be able to recognize there's nothing personal. You should be thankful. You texted me yesterday and said, I'm thirsty, and today I give you a fire hose. It's like, well, that was more than I needed, but hey, I'm not thirsty anymore. <laughs> Nor am I wearing any clothing. It was all... <laughs> so I think if we started in the beginning and started talking about laying on of hands and you laid hands on the goats to transfer the sin, lay hands on the scapegoat and lay hands on the ram, and lay, you, it would just get dry really quick. And I just, I've been trained and I've done this for too long to purposely go the wrong direction. So... We'll forego that experiment. I was really determined. My wife kept saying, you're really going to do it. You're going to really ruin a service. I was just for five minutes. But I also know you can quench the Spirit of God long enough that you can't retrieve the service. And I don't want to risk that because if I know to do good and I purposely play with the Holy Spirit, he would co-labor with me with that for I don't know how long and then just leave and say, let me know when you're ready to honor me again. And so we'll just prove it. I want to teach on the next doctrine of Christ, Hebrews 6, the laying on of hands. I have notes of that from two weeks ago. They're already laid out. I can give you the canned message, but it won't fit. But what we will talk about is being built up a spiritual house, and you will bear witness that it is the Word of God. I will not deal with your sins, because some of you have squawked too much. You don't like it. That's an even worse judgment, because it means we're just going to leave you alone. The worst thing is for God to say, all right, and... and the worst thing is for the coach to stop harping on you. The worst thing is for the teacher to stop giving you extra attention. The worst thing is to be left to your own devices. So I'm going to back away from that because I have permission from God. And we'll just talk about how to be built up a spiritual house. Go to 1 Peter. I really wanted to take a tank of service, but I probably would risk not being able to retrieve it. And then you'd all be very mad at me more than just me dealing with your sin and rebellion. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Please just know this. Let me say it again. If I do hit on your sin, it isn't, especially if you brought it to me. I don't do that intentionally. I don't do that to belie your trust. I don't do that to, my, job, my heart is not to say, they just brought me and confided in me that they're struggling with pornography. Well, let me see if I can go out there Sunday morning and absolutely destroy their soul and hurt that precious person and run them off so they go to a church that doesn't know how to help them. That's never my heart. At any given moment, I know everybody's sin in this church. And I don't, I've told my wife, I don't care what these people do in private. Let them sin. But if the Lord deals with me to say, all right, deal with that now. Deal with that man's attitude towards his wife. I see how you treat each other in the back and how you treat each other in the parking lot. I see how you treat each other tweeting and texting. I don't deal with that. I'd rather just teach the word and make you laugh. That's my heart. I'd rather teach the word and make you laugh. But if I do have to line up your sin and knock it down, please know it may be that you're not the only person to have dealt with it this week. And at some point, I have to say, well, I can keep spending an hour with individual people in private, or I feel like I have permission from God to address this with the word of God. And maybe you're not the one I'm blasting at, but it's the person who made the first phone call that I'm dealing with. When, when, when the, the devil walketh about as a roaring lion, he takes as many as he can, and it usually is in a wave. All the marriages are under attack, just like all of a sudden we're having a bunch of babies being born, or having a whole bunch of pregnancies, or burying a bunch of people, or we have a whole bunch of folks succumbing to porn. It comes in waves, and the wise pastor sees the wave and prepares for the wave. The foolish pastor just sticks with the next scripture in the next paragraph of the next chapter of the next book because that's what we do. Definitely Wapner at five. We just teach the next verse, the next verse, the next verse, regardless of what the people are suffering. Again, that's like getting chemotherapy when you don't have cancer. 
It's like getting Rogaine when your name is Samson. You don't need it. <laughs> yeah. First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice, that's, that's a good thing to lay aside, and all guile, when you do come to me for help, please give me all the details, good, the bad, and the ugly, and I will do my very best to judge and help the situation. Don't hold anything back. I'm not going to judge you because I've already heard it all. Uh, I've heard some of those heinous stuff. I think I've heard stuff in my office that makes God blush. And everybody has something they're dealing with. Don't operate in guile. Guile is you sharing the part of the story that makes you look the best. Share it all. If we're going to get this thing fixed, share it all. It's like going and saying you're struggling with breathing, but you don't tell the doctor you've smoked three packs of menthols a day for 20 years. You're not going to get the help you need if you're withholding valuable intel. And lay aside all hypocrisies. We're really trying not to be hypocrites. And envies and all evil speakings. That can be done with texting anymore. As newborn babes, it doesn't say we are, but act like a newborn babe. Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Just be hungry for the word to be taught. Just desire it. It's often when you get grown up in the things of God, you think you've heard it all. But it's not about having heard it all. It's about hearing it and hearing it again. So Peter gives this exhortation that I know you're not babies, but be hungry. Even us as adults, we don't breastfeed anymore, thank God, but we still drink milk. We still get calcium that way, even if it's almond milk or coconut milk or rice milk, whatever they're milking anymore. That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> that you may grow thereby. If so, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is gracious to whom coming as unto a living stone. Jesus Christ is the living stone. Disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Verse 5. You also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. The second it says, lively stones built up a spiritual house, it instantly invokes the imagery of Solomon's temple and the stones that were probably the better part of 25 years in preparation. David began to prepare. We're going to look at these scriptures this morning. David began to prepare even stones, even timber, before he even died because he couldn't build it, but he knew he had the blueprint. The Bible declares he had the blueprint by the Spirit of God. He knew what it was supposed to look like, and he knew what the quantities were. He also realized, I cannot have enough time to get that quantity ready. It's not like going and buying bricks at the big brick factory. They had to hand chisel these massive stones. Come with me to Ephesians. We're going to build a foundation, then jump over here to the Old Testament. This will be a message inspired by my botany book that I'm working on. It'll be probably only the third or fourth one. Oh, there's, there's the thing that says, stop killing the service. Huh. Ephesians chapter, um, chapter 2. I just finished my chapter on cedars. i got to go back and make a lot of tweakings on it. So that, this is coming out of this a little bit. So we'll talk a little bit about cedar trees. But I think what I hope to do is encourage you, but also challenge you. But please never forget the day that we live in. The world is on fire. And if the world isn't on fire, the media will find a fire to start.
to get viewings and ratings because when you can keep a population in fear, you can move them in any direction, whether it's a COVID fear, whether it's an ISIS fear, whether it's a climate change fear, whether it's a polar ice cap melting fear, whether it's we're running out of trees and forest fear. When people are afraid, you can get them to do anything you want. And that's the spirit of Antichrist. We're not of the spirit of fear. We're of the spirit of power and love and a sound mind. So don't ever forget the day that you live in. And please don't ever forget that there is an enemy that wants to work to get you out of your place. And when you're out of your place, what will become of you? Because we are not strong, isolated. We are strong, knit together as the body of Christ. Ephesians 2 says, verse 19, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, which means you ought to probably fellowship with some of us. You should fellowship with the body of Christ. Don't be a stranger. We've heard that expression. You're not a foreigner. Don't be a stranger. We're part of the same body. But we're fellow citizens with the saints. Well, we ought to have our fellowship among the holy ones. Do you know you won't, it won't kill you to fellowship with people you go to church with more than just in the back in the nursery? It'd be okay to go get ice cream with them or coffee or go see a movie or go for a hike or Maybe let that be one of your best friends. We're watching our kids grow up together. We've watched some of our kids grow up and get married. I don't think that's a problem. I think that's a good thing. Now I'm honored to have ministry friends all over the country who have kids our kids' age. They want their kids to marry our kids because they think, what a legacy of faith. That's a good thing. It's better than your kid wanting to go off and marry somebody they met in biology or sociology, yeah, or at the sorority mixer. <laughs> fellowship. Uh, we're, we have fellow citizenship with the saints. We are of the household of God. And when you're of the household of God, church isn't just a place you visit Sunday mornings. It's where you live your life. It's amazing we're having to teach these messages in this day because we're fighting a culture of I just got to be me, I just got to be me, I just got to self-identify. And when you self-identify, you look like every other pagan self-identifying. You'll find that when you walk in Christ, you lose your identity. That Jesus Christ might be seen in you. That he might be glorified. And at the same time, the more you lose your identity in Christ, the more unique and individual you become because you become the you that only you can be through Jesus Christ. There, even there's churches in, embracing this humanism now called just be you or uh, come, come to our church where you can be you. I'm not interested in us being us. I want Jesus Christ to be glorified in our midst. And when, when Jesus Christ is glorified in Chris McMichael, Chris McMichael dies, the old man dies, and a new man comes forth out of Christ. And it looks a lot like Jesus. It has Chris McMichael's maybe personality or styling, but it's more of Jesus than ever before. If I become me, according to the world, I look just like the world, smell like the world talk like the world. This is why lesbians all look the same. This is why transgenders, when they transition, all look the same. This is why emos all look the same. Gothics all look the same. When you take upon yourself the, the spirit of the world, you look like the, what the world has to, help, has to offer. Hippies haven't changed their styling in 70 years. They're still wearing tie-dye with dreadlocks. They're just piercing new things, and tattoos have become trendy now. But when you're in Christ and you're of the household of God, you are distinct because God treats you like an individual. Just like in your household, all your kids are different and distinct. They, they smell of McMichael or of Ogilvie or the, of King or of Keith, but they're different and distinct personalities, though they came from the same parents. 
When you're in the world, the world just makes you all the same. Just smears you all together like Play-Doh till it turns gray. But with us, we come to the household of God. He makes us the most distinct individual we could ever be, yet we lose our identity. It's an, it's an oxymoron. It's a tension, but it's one we experience and we see it. And you no longer identify with that group. You identify with the, the body of Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are partakers of his fellowship, partakers of his suffering, and it makes us the person he wants us to be. Quit being the person TikTok wants you to be. Quit being the person your professor wants you to be. You ought to be who Christ made you to be. Household of God. And we're built upon the foundation of the professors and the media talking heads. No, no, we don't. This church is not built upon media, not even our government. Uh, we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now we're back to that imagery of Solomon's temple again. Chief cornerstone foundation, chief cornerstone foundation, in whom all the building, that's what you put on top of a foundation, all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple, there's that holy temple again, in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together, ye, that means you members in particular of the household of God, you are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, before we go and look at the Old Testament, this is applied to a church, the Ephesians church, and he is looking at each member of that local church as building equipment. And what that speaks to us instantly is when we are built together, we don't put ourselves where we want to be. The two by four, Brother Robert knows this, he's a master carpenter. The two by four doesn't jump out of the pile of lumber and say, I want to be there. No. The two-by-four just submits to the carpenter's hand that grabs him, cuts off both ends, splits them, rips them, and puts them in the basement to house a sump pump. And I'm sure that two-by-four says, I was hoping for better than this. It doesn't matter. You're going to be sheetrocked anyway. We're not even going to see you. Anytime we look at these passages, God is looking at us saying, I need you, but we don't want to see you. Amen. And our culture teaches us to be opinionated. And our culture teaches us showmanship. And our culture teaches us to put our name on the covers of our books. And our culture teaches us to put our name front and center. And yet when you look at houses and things being built together, very little even gets seen. Even when you sheetrock it, do you leave exposed sheetrock or do you cover it? You paint it. So even with the sheetrock that covers the two-by-four, the, the master carpenter, the home builder says, guess what, sheetrock, we love you. We don't want to see you either. And then this thing called paint washes over it. The Old Testament talks about being painted with vermilion, red. Be painted. These fancy houses were painted red because they desired that color. We've got to get away from this idea that, that in a sense, we're important, our opinion matters, that we should have our say. We, we have to realize that in one allegory of the Bible, we are just building supplies to God that we might be a habitation for God in the Spirit. And once the habitation is built, other people can come in and meet our God. And in that regard, in that moment, we matter nothing. We're busy being built together a habitation for God in the Spirit so that when outsiders, the lost, the pagan, the hurt, the bound, the possessed come in, they don't see us. They don't see the two-by-four that really wants to be front and center. They just know that something's here that has made a habitation for God in the Spirit. As long as we have personality fights and as long as we have one-upmanship and we have showmanship and we have me-firsterism, where it's just me first, me first, God won't be able to inhabit us because we won't be finished yet. There's many houses of God in the earth. Most of them are not finished yet. 
And even when you do get a house finished, it's usually for one or two services, then you got to come back and tweak things again. If we could ever maintain a consistent presence of God, it would speak a lot to our personal maturity as members in particular. But even when you build a house, you got to come back and do repairs later. Even brand new houses begin to settle. You got sheetrock cracks. You might have to repair some floor joists. There might be some water leakage. Any house takes maintenance, even the house of God. Even the Old Testament gave a commandment that an offering was always taken that the temple of God might be maintained. Even God's glorious temple that Solomon built required maintenance, as does any church today. So you see, we are supposed to be builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. When we can see the bigger picture, our personal agendas don't matter. And yet, if we can be builded together, the presence of God that will then inhabit our, our presence, our temple, our church, it'll fix our personal agenda. It'll help our personal problem. We've got to realize if we're the foundational group, if we're the core saints, we're here together to make sure the folks who come in from the outside can find Christ, can find help, can find the glory of God, that their kids can come in and be plugged right into the house of God, that, that something can take place. It's not what we're seeing in today's church. We're seeing a lot of showmanship. We're seeing a lot of preachers want to make their name great. They're trying to see how many campuses they can get. They're trying to see how big they can grow their main campus, how many book deals they can get. And really, Jesus Christ is not glorified in that. And there's not a lot of change going on in the individual lives. If you can humble yourself and realize God looks at you as a two-by-four or a brick and that we don't really want to see you. God doesn't even really want to see me. He wants us to be built together. He's glorified when we dwell at peace. He's glorified when we fit together. He is glorified when we lay down our personal preferences and our fancies and our favorite skin color and our favorite culture and our favorite whatever. And we just say, Lord, if you want me as a two by four to be next to that person as a two by four, so be it. If, if you're the master carpenter, and I think Jesus was one of those on purpose to lend itself to preaching today, and he grabs you out of the bundle of two by fours and says, this is where I want you, you're stuck, and you don't get to be moved. I've never seen a two-by-four pull itself out of place and jump out of the house and hop down the road to go join itself to something else. The master carpenter has to go come along and say, we're going to expand things, and I need you over here. We can recycle these two-by-fours to which we say, praise God. And he doesn't just cut us up and pitch us out. He uses us in another place. It takes the master carpenter coming in and saying, I'm going to remove this wall, and I'm going to put it over here. I'm going to make room there, and I'm going to use them out there. It takes the master carpenter. Too many Christians just decide they're a sheetrock wall that doesn't want to be here anymore. They're a two-by-four that doesn't want to be I don't agree with where I was placed. Okay, you're an American then. And, and that kind of begins to render you not valuable. So come with me now to 1 Kings. Let's look at some stuff here. We looked at stones. We looked at being framed together. This is the, the construction material of Solomon's temple. Stones and trees. Stones and lumber. 1 Kings chapter 5 taking you a while to get there. It's clean pages are still stuck together with that pretty gold foil on your Bible. You'll want to underline some of these or mark them because these are good verses. First Kings chapter five, verse 15, Solomon had three score and 10,000 that bear burdens. That's 70,000 and four score thousand. That's 80,000 hewers in the mountains. 
Now, what's interesting, if you can do a, you can do a Google search if you want to, one of the major quarries in Israel is an underground quarry called Zedekiah's Cavern or Solomon's Quarry. It's an underground limestone mine. It dates way back. It runs under Jerusalem. They've mapped the whole thing. You can pull up a picture of it right now. It's fascinating to think when it says in the mountains, it literally means in the mountains. And I really appreciate that as a former mine geologist, because to look at the map, which I have, you see the working heads, the he what's what you call working header, in a, where you're a stope, where you're advancing your quarry. So you had 80,000 men in these quarries getting stone out, not crusher run, not 57 stone, not gravel, huge blocks. What's fascinating is these rocks come out of the mountain. They're, they're of no value in the mountain. You can't build with rock in the mountain. He's got 80,000 hewers of stone, which ruled, uh, excuse me, in the mountain, besides the chief of Solomon's officers, which were over the work, 3,300. So we'd call those 3,300 middle management, which ruled over the people that wrought in the work. So you're dealing with 150,000 uh, workers. And then on top of that, Hiram, king of Tyre, the Phoenician king, he had 30,000 of his own men he contributed. So now you're dealing with 188 180,000 plus. It's a lot of men. Verse 17, and the king commanded and they brought great stones, costly stones and hewed stones to lay the foundation of the house. So we remember our first verse was first Peter. And it says, we also as lively stones are built up. So here we have wonderful allegory that we are these stones and it says great stones, not mediocre stones. And you and I were cut out of the mountain of God. And we're of no value in the quarry. We're of no value in the hill, side of the hill. We must be cut out. But going back to David saying he had the blueprint in the spirit, he knew what these stones needed to be. So they're not just willy-nilly cutting these stones. They're cutting these stones to exact specifications. And if the stone says, no, 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 you, you leave that little knob there. I like that knob. The hewer of stone says, no, no, the blueprint says it's got to go. And you know what? The rock doesn't get to complain. It submits to the saw because they sawed these things. What the Bible tells us, they, they cut them with saws. I have no idea what that would even look like. These stones were only valuable when they had submitted to the blueprint they were supposed to fit. And if they were to come to the temple site and be only half complete, they're not useful. And they were to come to the temple site and they were to, to uh, be an inch off or an inch too small. They wouldn't be valuable because they were all locked. They were designed to go in a specific place. Th these were not bricks that were mass produced where you just grab the next brick and put it. These were all keystone together. That's the technique of the ancients. Even Herod's temple did the same thing. Th these things only go in one place. And that speaks to us today. You fit in one place. Now, when you're, when you're glorious and God-filled, you can adapt in a lot of different places, but God has that place for you. If you're the corner buttress, you don't get to go be in the middle of the wall somewhere. You have to be the corner buttress. If you're one of the stones that makes an archway, you're, you're kind of curved. You're not going to go get to be anywhere else. This is where you fit. So you got to be content in Christ and be content with who he made you to be. And quit listening to the world because the world would like to look at you and chisel you the way they want you to use you for their gain. But these, these are costly stones. These great stones talks about their size. Costly means how much it, they're valued at because you got a lot of guys working to get them just right. 
Huge stones, which means there's a lot of friction and chiseling and hard work. It is a lot of hard work to be who Jesus Christ wants you to be. We like the old adage, he loves you just the way you are, but he's not going to leave you there. But he loves you enough to change you. Coming to church chisels things off of you. Studying your Bible chisels things off you. Having a Bible study chisels things off you. In prayer chisels things off of you. The name of the game is, have you become more conformed to Christ's image that he designed for you, that predestined image he has of you, or are you letting the world chisel on you? Are you letting TikTok chisel on you? Are you letting the peer pressure of your sociology class chisel on you? Or do you get back to the Word of God and say, no, 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 I can't let that professor knock that corner off of me. Jesus Christ wants that edge on my life. And you don't have permission to go chisel pretty designs in your face of the stone. No, God wants you smooth. He wants you the way he designed you. We know from archaeology and from history, they would take the stones and they'd rub them side by side where they were going to fit together in the, on the temple site. And wherever those stones that were going to be placed side by side, wherever they rubbed each other and there was powder, they knew they weren't fitting tight enough. So they chisel on both of those people. We teach on that when we teach on helps ministry because you get to work with somebody in helps ministry you wouldn't be friends with normally. And you guys are going to rub each other and produce powder and friction. And you're going to realize where you're immature and they're going to realize where they're immature. And God doesn't like any of it. So you both get chiseled on. <laughs> and that's okay. But it also tells us even if we chisel you out, if you don't show up to the temple site, you're still not valuable. You're not valuable left in your hole of the mountain, you're not valuable left in the quarry. You've got to make the effort to come. And everything about it speaks of hard work. Chiseling a rock out of a mountain using bronze age tools is hard work, especially when these stones are, some of them are bigger than our platform up here. That's hard work. And then to transport it from the quarry, if it came from the quarry under Jerusalem, if it, to transport it from there up a hill, up to the top of Mount Zion is hard work. And then to position it into place is hard work. So it's one thing to be cut out of the mountain and be born again. It's another thing to be polished and perfected. Because, you know, when you cut a stone out of a mountain, it's rough hewn. And then you bring it out into the open. And then the, the next stage of hewers of stone, the rock masons, they get to smooth it and shape it. They put it next to each other. They polish them. That's another a lot of work. Even there, we could... Be polished, but if you don't come to the temple site, what good are you? Keeping your giftings at home, your strength at home, your ability. There's, there's no good. you got to come to the house of God. You can't stream a stone. Brother Robert, you build houses. What happens if all your lumber just zooms into the job site? Makes a mess. And you got a naked job site. I'm all for zooming when you're sick and there's blood coming out of holes. Eyes, ears, nose. That's okay. And feverish. Yeah, stay home, Zoom. But if you're healthy and it's raining, just zoom on into the house of God. <laughs> drive yourself. That's why God gave you a car. If you want to keep the car, drive to church in it. Look at um, verse 18. And Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them. So you have King Solomon, king of Israel, and King Hiram, king of Tyre, king of the Phoenician Empire. They are both getting their work done. They have two groups of hewers. Now, to me, this says you got two groups of people working on you in your life. You got the kingdom working on you, and you got the world working on you. But the world, and by this I mean the good world, your professor will knock things off of you. Your boss will knock things off of you. The police officer will prove what's in your heart when he pulls you over the third time for speeding. 
This man has been pulled over for texting a few times. <laughs> Keep taking notes, honey. Nobody will know it's you. <laughs> She's always been able to talk herself out of a ticket. I think they were just generous, and she rolls down the window to make sure they can see all the kids in the back. Anybody with authority in your life, even if it's Hiram, king of Phoenice, they'll be able to knock things off of you. So this is why we teach you to be a good employee, be a good student, be a good citizen, be a good ball player on your team. Uh, my kids right now are being challenged by their coaches because their coaches don't have personalities they're used to. And we just smile because it frustrates our kids and say, look, you're going to pray for your coach. This is not going to be the meanest person you ever meet in your whole life. And you're not quitting because they're a little rough on you. Deal with it. You've got Hiram's in your life and you've got Solomon's in your life. And if you always run from both, you stay in the quarry. And if you stay in the quarry, you don't get to experience the temple dedication that's coming. Well, I don't like it. I'm just going to go back to my little hole. Like a little troglodyte. Just go back in the darkness. Find a little hole that you were chiseled out of. And people will. They'll just reinsert themselves. And I've been church hurt. Yes, we all have. Mostly by you. When, when somebody's been hurt, they're not the only person that's been hurt. And they usually do some hurting of them own. We, if we can understand that we've all hurt each other, pastors hurt people often unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, but pastors get hurt more than anybody. And Brett's been hurt. Brett hurt Robert, but Robert hurt Josh and Josh hurt Kamal, but Kamal hurt Bobby. There is this thing called grace and forgiveness. And there's this thing that says, better are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend and the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So I don't know why you want to quit, but you're not going to be used if you quit. Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them and the stone squares. So they prepared timber and stones to build the house. It's preparation. They haven't built it yet. It's just preparing. This is why it's more, it's important that you have a walk with God outside of church. You need to be prepared outside of church because when we come to church, that's us building the house. But if this is the only time we chisel, if this is the only time we prepare you as lumber, then we're wasting all of our time in a service trying to get you ready when you should be going home and preparing with God and going home and studying your Bible and going home and submitting and going home and repenting and going home and, and letting the word of God chisel on you, going home and taking to heart whatever was preached at you. But if this is the only time you open your Bible, we're going to be a long time in building the house of God. Verse 7, chapter 6, verse 7. And the house, when it was in building, because we jump ahead in time here, was built of stone made ready before it was brought there, so that there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in building. I've preached that verse many times, but it's worth noting all the final work was done in the quarry, which made for a very quiet job site. No tools of iron or brass were used on these stones. They were complete in the quarry because they knew exactly where they were going to fit together once they were brought up to the surface. In a local church, if you know who you're serving with Wednesday night, you ought to prepare yourself so that there's no friction. If you know we have a guest mentor, you should prepare yourself so there's no friction. If you know we're going evangelizing, you prepare yourself in the quarry of your home so that you show up for evangelism ready to win the lost. The reason chisels come out in service is because sometimes we're dealing with lazy stones. There, every service shouldn't be some jackhammer service. But it happens because Christians don't do the word. 
Why is he preaching all that again? Why didn't you get it the, the first time out of 20? Why does all the chiseling have to take place on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night? Only but because the stones are negligent. They don't want to be chiseled on. And if there's a vision of a greater house and we need those edges knocked off you, apparently you don't walk with God at home so they don't get knocked off you so they have to be dealt with. But the, the ideal vision is here in verse 7. There was no tools heard, no hammer, nor axe, nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in building. Makes for a peaceful construction of the house of God. It would be awesome. I remember last Sunday morning we talked about coming up in your vision. If everybody's household in this church, 220, 230 people, 50, 60 families, if every household took a step up in whatever the vision is God's been dealing with you about in private for years, if every household took a step up, what would that do to the strength of our local church? Let's pick on a few sins, though I, don't, I care, but I don't care. If every person struggling with porn in this church got delivered today, every person dealing with substance abuse got the victory today, every person who needed to get some kind of appetite under control mastered it today, Every dad instantly got his attitude adjusted and treated his wife better today. Every business owner got their house in order today. What would that do to the strength of our church come Wednesday? That's what we're aiming for here. Don't be upset that sparks fly. Be upset you can't see the vision. Be upset that you're the one that has to be sparked. Don't take it personal. I, I get tickled because everybody loves hard preaching except for when it's them getting sparked. Man, that's good preaching. Yeah, because it wasn't your sin. Yeah, you didn't go, go home and slander me because it wasn't your sin. Sure. <laughs> I grew up Baptist. They said, they, most, they said Southern Baptists like pot roast for lunch until the preacher preaches against them. Then they're like roast pastor for lunch. <laughs> the vision is stones fit together. Stones are the strength of the structure. Stones are the, the strong Christians. Stones are the ones that carry all the burden. Stones are the elders. Stones are the deacons. Stones are the department heads. Stones are the senior saints. These are the ones that bear the burden of everything. These are the superstructure. And, and if you can't get along, we'll get that thing chiseled off so that you can be a strong foundational stone. God's always working on, but there's, there's a good news too. Look at 1 Chronicles. We're going to go back and forth between Kings and Chronicles. Hold your place there and 1 Kings 5 because we're going to come back to it. But let's go over to 1, excuse me, yeah, 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 22. So in 1 Kings 5, we're looking at Solomon is already building. In 1 Chronicles 22, we're looking at the end of David's life. So we're jumping back in time because I want to encourage some of you old timers. Okay, for the old-timers that are awake, that was, a, that was a word that was like, yeah. So I have some encouragement for you. So did you elbow the old-timer and you wake him up? Pastor was talking about you just now. It was a good thing. So I want to encourage some of you old-timers. Yeah. <laughs> Pastoring would be easy if it weren't for the people. First Chronicles 22, verse 1. Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of the burnt offering of Israel. And David commanded to gather together the strangers that were in the land of Israel. These are all the foreigners that were left over that had not been destroyed. So he gathers up all the foreigners and makes 
an industry out of them. And he set masons to hew wrought stones to build the house of God. All right, so he gathers together a workforce that is comprised of Amorites, Hittites, Gerizites, leftover Philistines. These are the folks that hadn't been destroyed. He doesn't kill them. He says, all right, you guys are welcome to stay, but you're working in the quarries. And that's who the workforce is made of. The 180,000, 150,000 that we saw in 1 Kings, that's all foreigners that still want to live in Israel. But to live in Israel, you have to work on the temple. None of the Israelites labored like that. They all went and they did other things that were higher up because being a believer has its privileges. All right? But I want you to see David, when his last probably decade, because he realizes, he goes on to say, Solomon, my son, is young and tender. So at this point, Solomon is born. So we got a couple years. There are stones that have been prepared that have just been sitting and waiting. Maybe as many as 10 and 15 years old or as old as that far back. Because David probably spent at least 10 or 15 years stockpiling stuff. So there are, there's somewhere in Israel, we don't know where, there's a giant job site where they just keep bringing out the next stone and bringing out the next stone and bringing out the next stone. And these guys have remained in the wings, in the shadows, as it were, not used yet. But they're prepared. And they know what to do. And they know their place. That, that means these are old stones that were a long time in preparation, but they've not found their place yet. That ought to encourage you that God's not done with you, that, man, I was discipled. I was chiseled years ago. I know how not to get offended. I know how to pull my weight around here. I know how to pray. I know how to intercede. I just haven't found where I belong yet. Well, there's, that's good news. It means stones, even though they get older, they don't get weaker. Your body in the natural might get weaker, but your spirituality doesn't. So somewhere out there, there's a whole stockpile of stones just waiting for somebody to say, da, 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 today we begin construction. And they go get the old ones first because they were cut out first and we know where they go first. So that means you older folks, we ought to be building on you and standing on you, getting higher upon your shoulders because you have laid the foundational work. That's why even Ephesians 2 says the apostles and prophets are the foundation. They, are, they went first. So you don't have to be afraid that, well, I'm not going to be used. I'm an older, one of the older class. That means you should be the first to be used. So lay down your life and let others build upon you. But now here's the catch. If you're the bottom stone, you don't get to go anywhere. Number one, it's impossible. Number two, if you quit or leave, we have a problem. If you could somehow demonically move yourself out, we have a problem. And that just means you don't love us. You don't realize the burden God has placed upon you. You don't realize the eternal reward God places upon you being a foundation stone. And you'll never want to be one if you realize that once we lay that stone, we're probably going to backfill dirt for the first 20 runs because that's just how construction works. If you want to be seen, you're no foundation stone. So that means TBN. I don't even know if they are on the temple site. David commanded to gather the strangers that were in the land of Israel, and he set masons to hew wrought stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails, for the doors of the gate, and for the joinings, and brass in abundance, and cedar trees in abundance for the Zidonians. And they of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. And David said, Solomon, my son, is younger, is young and tender, and the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnifical of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. So maybe about 10 years of stonework 
and yet those stones had not been placed as of yet. So be encouraged that even if you're old, we still need your strength. All right, now come back to 1 Kings. Let's look at wood. Let's look at timber. 1 Kings chapter 5. Because if you didn't know, you and I exist to be used. We exist to be built up. Our life is not our own. And yet the tension and the catch-22 in it is if we allow God to use us, he'll take care of us. If we allow God to use us, if we allow ourselves to be a battery consumed for God's use, he'll always take care of us. Dr. Sumrall said, if you're always trying to build your kingdom, you'll lose it all. But if you build God's kingdom, he'll always make sure you're taken care of. So you've only got one of two kingdoms to build and live for, yours or God's. 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 2, Solomon sent to Hiram saying, jump down to verse 5, behold, this is Solomon speaking to Hiram, the Phoenician king, I, purpo- I purpose to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spake unto David my father, saying, Your son, whom I will set upon your throne in your room, he shall build a house unto my name. Now therefore, this is Solomon speaking to Hiram, command that thou hew me, that, excuse me, that they hew me cedar trees out of Lebanon, and my servants shall be with your servants, and unto thee will I give hire for your servants according to all that thou shalt appoint, for thou knowest that there is not among us any that... Uh, any that can skill to hew timber like unto the Sidonians. And it came to pass when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, which hath given unto David a wise son over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the things which thou sentest to me for, and I will do all thy desire concerning timber of cedar and concerning timber of fir. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon unto the sea, and I will convey them by sea in floats. A giant log jam, if you will, until the place that thou appoint me, which was Joppa, and will cause them to be discharged there, and thou shalt receive them, and thou shalt according uh, accomplish my desire in giving food for my household. So Hiram gave Solomon cedar trees and fir trees according to all his desire. And then goes on to talk about how much food and money Solomon paid for all of these things. We see here that after the temple stones are laid, the wood used is cedar wood. This also speaks of us, back to Ephesians 2. Also, Psalm says that the righteous shall flourish like the cedar trees. But that means that God picks those who are used in the next stage of construction. In a quarry, you just chisel rock after rock after rock. But when you timber, you selectively harvest. So this is a different category of believer. You don't take the babies because they have no wood to offer. You don't take the one that's been struck by lightning and has grown gnarled. It's cool to look at, not good for lumber. This thing is so big, this project, you've got to have the biggest, the strongest, the most upright, the one that you can look at and say, that will be a fantastic timber, a pillar. And so when you get to the second stage of building the house of God, you got to go select from a forest of believers. And the psalmist says that the righteous shall flourish like the cedars of Lebanon. Yeah, we're all growing there, but we're all at different stages of growth. But our job has to say, Lord, let me be straight. Let me be erect. Let me be monstrous. Let me be strong. Let me endure the cold winters and the harsh summers, and let me be worthy of being cut down. See, to, give your, to be used of God, you have to give your life. You have to be harvested from your dream. 
You've got to be harvested from your ambition. You've got to be harvested from your offense. You've got to be harvested from grandma's dream for your life. You've got to be willing to leave the place that you're comfortable with, to be cut down. Because once you cut down the tree, then you trim off all the branches. Talk about totally losing your identity. And now you're put in a log float, and you look like one among all the others. Once again, you got no identity. And then we take you down the seacoast, and we take you to Joppa, and then we bring you out at Joppa. We bring you inland 30 or 40 miles to Jerusalem. And then we cut you up into little pieces. We shave off your round sides to make a big square pillar, if that's what you're to be. Or we plank you, and we cut you down to make planes, two by tens and two by twelves out of you for paneling. We no longer can tell what you used to look like. That's a good thing, depending on where you came from. Now, when you still think you're awesome, you're up in that forest saying, no, don't cut me down. I'm the biggest there is. When you want to be used of God, you say, Lord, if you can use this tree, cut me down, trim my roots, trim my limbs, whatever the top 20 feet is, it's worth nothing because it's only six inches around. Cut that off too. Throw me in the hopper with the rest of the giants who no longer have an identity because they all look the same now, except God says, and yet... You're exactly what I need. The world doesn't recognize you anymore, but you're exactly what I'm looking for. So now that timber comes and it gets, gets put through the, the mill, lumber mill, and we're making planks out of it. We're making two by fours out. We're making trusses out of it. The Bible talks about all this. You got pillars that hold up the roof. The roof was made out of timber. Everything's made out of timber, but we don't recognize you anymore. And once you're set there, you don't get to come down. One tree doesn't get to say, I want to be a timber. Because Solomon said, you don't get to be a timber. You're not right for timber. I'm going to use you for flooring. I'm going to use you for the walls. I want to be a timber. Would you shut up? I'm going to use you to line the holy of holies. I'm going to line the holy of holies. That's what I'm going to do. Some guy may say, I want to be, the, I want to be in the holy of holies. Shut up. You're too big for that. I need you to be the temple pillar that holds up the roof. Okay, I could do that. And then there's those that are still left on Mount Lebanon who just aren't big enough yet. They get their feelings hurt. They don't understand how the kingdom works. The winters are too cold. The summers are too hot. They just like smelling pretty in the woods. They just, they're theoretical Christians. Everything's theory to them. They don't actually want to be cut down and used to advance the kingdom. They stay there as the wise old sage on the mountaintop with their little cones saying, yeah, this is the mountain where God picks trees from. Well, what are you still doing here? Yeah, this is the mountain where God picks trees from. Cedar trees are the greatest. We have all answers. We have the best smell. We grow the tallest and the biggest. Okay, but why haven't you been picked? I've been here 190 years. Why haven't you been picked? Well, I've seen a lot of cold winters. Why are you still here then? There's something wrong with you. He says, I'll give you all the wood that you want. You got your place in 1 Chronicles 22? Come back there. Let's encourage you old folks. You fell back asleep, didn't you? <laughs> we'll play TBN real quick. Touch your neighbor if they're asleep. <laughs> Say, wake up. Awake to righteousness and take better notes. First Chronicles 22, where we just were. David, he's preparing the house. He says in verse 4, also cedar trees in abundance for the Zidonians and they of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. 
So not, not only were there massive stones stockpiled for at least 15 or 20 years, there were also old cedar trees that had been cut down previously just waiting to be used. Your heart has got to be, Lord, I've been here a long time. Use me. Lord, you cut me down 20 years ago, which means you thought 20 years ago I was ready. I've been patient in this lumber yard. I still smell cedar trees. They don't, they, they, archaeology has uncovered cedar fragments from two or 3,000 years ago in Egypt that still smell like cedar. They don't lose their aroma like, oh, this is the one I'm going to bust you. This broke my heart two weeks ago researching this. I'm still offended. We don't have cedar trees in Tennessee. We don't. Not even the eastern red cedar. Juniperus virginiana. It is the Virginia juniper. Cedars of Lebanon, 50 minutes over here, is a lie. <laughs> Should be the junipers of Lebanon. It's a juniper tree. The difference is junipers have berries. Cedar trees have cones. We don't have cedar. Now, they brought some in, but North America has no natural cedar trees. That crushed my heart because it means all, all the guinea pigs I had as a kid, those weren't real cedar shavings. They were juniper shavings. And I lied to the, what was that hamster's name? We had a guinea pig too. I lied to him. I got you some cedar shavings. It's a liar. So juniper shavings, man. And their smell faded quickly, but not the cedars of Lebanon. They last thousands of years. That aroma. I've been laying in this lumber yard, Lord, for 20 years. I still smell strong today. Sounds like Caleb. I'm strong today as I was 20 years ago. If you can use me, Lord... I don't rot. Cedar wood doesn't rot. I don't rot. Bugs don't like me. Use me, Lord. And just be prepared to be used again if you want. Here, Chronicles 22, 4, that wood had been cut down prior. It took a long time. You just couldn't go down to Lowe's and order all this stuff off the back of a flatbed. This thing was massive. It took 100,000 plus people seven years to construct and 15 or 16 years to build the, 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 the supply chain for it. And two kings. Come back to 1 Kings. Once we construct all this and we've built it together, we've laid the stones, we have stone walls, and now we've laid giant timber buttresses and we put down planking. The Bible says the planking was the only thing that was fir. The doors were made out of olives. Everything else was cedar. It's a massive house of cedar. Just cedar, cedar, cedar. For that reason, Israel, uh, Jerusalem became called like the little Lebanon. It's called as Lebanon a few times in the prophets because of all the cedar tree that was used there. After he gets finished with all this, you're in 1 Kings chapter 6. Verse 18, and the cedar of the house within was carved with knops and open flowers. All was cedar. There was no stone seen. All the stones on the inside get covered up. This again speaks to lose your identity, lose your ego, lose your desire to be seen, lose your desire for, for notoriety because you're going to be covered up with something. If you're a stone, you're going to be covered up with something that's prettier and smells better. Amen. Amen. But lest cedar get into pride. Verse 21. So Solomon overlaid the house with pure gold. And he made a partition by the chains of gold before the oracle, and he overlaid it with gold. And the whole house 
he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the house. Also the whole altar that was by the oracle he overlaid with gold. <laughs> Once the house is built and all the wood paneling and the wood ceiling and the wood rafters and the wood flooring, all of it gets overlaid with gold. Even the timbers, the cedar doesn't get to be seen. This is how we build a house for God. It's not about you. It's not about your image. It's not about your name. It's not about your rights. We know the gold represents the presence of God, but the presence of God hasn't even fallen yet. It's just another thing to cover people up with. We've got to be ready. We could say it this way. He beautifies the meek with salvation. He, he beautifies us with graces, and it calls us to do things we wouldn't choose to do. But yet, the trees were useless in the forest, and the rock was useless in the quarry, and the gold is useless in the treasury. Just like our lives. Doing our own thing, useless. Living our own life, useless. Stockpiling our own money, useless. All of it speaks to the members of in particular coming out of where they're comfortable, being shaped according to a plan they wouldn't choose, planed, trimmed, cut, hewn, chiseled to a shape they don't want that God might be glorified. All of it speaks of total selflessness. And yet, if the stones disobey, the timber can never find its place. If the timber disobeys, the gold can never find its place. If the gold doesn't go in, we can never ever say the house is finished, now let's dedicate it. How many houses of God in our nation are still a constant work in progress and nothing ever gets accomplished? Like I said, I believe there comes a time when a house is complete, God fills it, we have a little revival, then we go back to maintenance. We complete it, we have a revival, God's presence falls, then we go back to maintenance. How many houses have never had revival? How many houses, we well, got too many stones saying, I'm not helping, I'm not working next to them, you're not going to make me serve next to them. The timber says, you can't cut me down, I'm not coming off the lake on Sunday. Hey, we need to take our fourth trip to Texas this week. I need to take my ninth trip to California. That's just what we do. We go to California nine times a year. You're a tree that we cannot use. You're not mature enough. We can't count on you. You can't count on that stone that's gone half the year. How can you be a foundational stone when you're a snowbird? Half your life in Florida, half your life in Chicago. This talks about selflessness, being planted where God has assigned you, living your life there, being content. If this is where God wants me to be, I'm going to be a cedar tree right here, covered in the gold of God, getting to touch the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. If this is where he wants me to be, it's where I'll be. Now come over one or two more verses. I'm sorry, chapters. 1 Kings chapter 8. We're at the day when it's time to dedicate the temple. Verse 1, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel, unto King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month, and all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord in the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, even those things, even those did the priests and the Levites bring up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered for multitude. 
And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place, into the oracle of the house, to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims. For the cherubim spread forth their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubims covered the ark and the staves thereof above. And they drew out the staves, that the ends of the staves were seen out in the holy place before the oracle, and they were not seen without. And they are there unto this day. There was nothing in the ark save the two tables of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of that holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. The Lord, that's the call to dedication. The Lord could not fill the house until the house was finished. The house could not be finished until gold was placed in it. But the gold could not be placed in it until the last piece of cedar paneling was in place. But the last piece of cedar paneling could not be in place until the last stone was set. But the last stone could not be set until it had arrived on site. All of it is dependence upon one another that we might usher in the presence of God. Yet this is our God. This is his mandate. This is his blueprint. This, the, the New Testament speaks of this as reflecting to us. And this is why it's so critical that we're faithful to God and to his house. We're faithful to one another. That even if we rub each other raw, we say, praise God. It makes you smoother and it makes me smoother. Amen. That we find the place God assigns us and say, I will be content being a children's worker the rest of my life if that's how God needs me. And then when you're where you need to be, you put off this aroma. You have the strength to add and the glory of God. The, the gold covers you. And then, then when, when that's all in place, you get to watch the priest bring past the Ark of the Covenant and you know it's coming. When that Ark gets set down where it's supposed to be, you know the presence of God is going to fill the house. And that is why we must fight to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That's Ephesians 4. We must endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because all you have to have is two cedar panelings get out of whack with each other it bumps the gold plating. It exposes the stone. And now we have to stop everything to go adjust that. This is why we have to be mature. This is why we have to grow up. Because if you're like me, you want the presence of God. You and I both know without the glory of God, this is just a lecture hall because I'm a teacher. Without the glory of God, this is just dead and religious because I'm a preacher, a pastor. Without the glory of God, we stay the same and we just have a head knowledge that differs from the Muslims. Without the glory in the presence of God, what are we doing? And yet the glory is not cheap. It's free, but it ain't cheap. It comes at tremendous expense to our egos, our reputation, our ambitions, our offenses. It challenges what we agree with and disagree with. It, if we want the glory of God, we got to be willing to swallow pride, sit next to somebody we don't like, forgive somebody we've been holding odd against, and just shut up and do what we're told to do. I don't think we should take the trash out this way. Does it really matter? Just take it out and let's keep the glory of God in here. You hate to think the presence of God is that finicky, but it is. He cannot stand strife because behind strife is always pride and he'll resist it. How can he come into a house and bless it when he's having to resist half the people present? Well, I think I have a better way. We didn't ask. Just shh, let me just nail you back up against the wall and fix the gold plating so we can get God back in here. Well, I have an idea. We didn't ask. Should have said that when they were planing you down at the log, the log mill. I have a better idea. How did you get this far into the process? <laughs> we, 
you get to a certain place in Christ where you, I would have hoped you would have passed the test by now. How, how did you get past the log mill complaining like that? How did the carpenters ever nail you in the Holy of Holies opinionated like that? Because now we risk popping the gold plating off when you decide to warp. If you recognize you're beginning to warp, you, you just grab a hammer and put yourself back in place. How does that look? Shut up, head. Shut up. It doesn't matter what we do with the money on the mission field. We're just going to trust those missionaries. My wife used to really have trouble how much money I shipped to Africa because we were taken for money. Because she's a steward of money. She'd say, honey, I don't know. Can we trust this one? We have to, honey. Somebody's got to help these guys. There's a certain reputation that goes with African preachers. After 15, 14 years, 25 years of some of our friendships in Africa as a ministry, we know who we can and can't trust. So what she you have to do? Just shut up, head. I trust my husband to send the money to the right place, and I trust the missionary or the pastor to spend it where it needs to be spent. When you feel yourself starting to warp and pop out of where God's assigned you, just say, shut up. Is it worth the glory of God? No. If it's heresy, sure. But there won't be any glory if there is heresy. If there's insubordination, fornication, perversion, and corruption, there won't be any glory anyway. But is it really worth the glory for you to pop out of place, push the gold plating out, because I think we have a better way to do children's sign-in. You weren't here when we pioneered the thing. You weren't here when we looked at all the options. You weren't here when we visited all the other churches and looking at how they did things. Just learn to run it the way we run it. And after you get it and you're cool with it, we might ask you if you have an idea. But don't sit there opinionated in the Holy of Holies. You would have been the wrong timber to select. There's a mansion, an antebellum mansion in, outside Baton Rouge called Nottaway. I've been there. It's pretty. It was a big sugar plantation during pre-Civil War days and the days of slavery. But the reason they called it Nottaway is because I think it was built out of oak. But all the wood that came out of the, the mill, the man was so wealthy, he could be this persnickety. He allowed no knots in the wood at all. And if you've ever done any woodwork how much lumber you have to go through to make sure there are not any knots in any of your lumber. And so that's why it became called knot away, because the lumber would come, knot away, and you get rid of any log. And most of them you don't even get to see, because they're behind stucco or sheetrock, not sheetrock, but it's stucco, it's lathe and plaster. Only the hardwood floors are exposed in that house. We want to be upright, straight, holy timbers of God, that even though we are not going to be seen, you know that what's behind the gold plating is worth seeing. Otherwise, the house of God is just a trailer. And God does not want the, the church of the living God, the local house, the local assembly, the local body to be constructed like a trailer. I'm not against trailers. If that's what you want to live in, if that's where you start, praise God. But there's a big difference between a trailer and how it's constructed and another kind of home. And I think we understand the difference. You want to make sure that if you're a stone, man, you say, Lord, chisel me the way you want me. You invite the sparks because it means you're going to fit better. If you are going to be a timber, you have a sweet aroma and you're honored. God would cut you down because it means you are what he wants. He called you out of your career. He called you out of your dream. He cut you down away from your family and said, I'm going to send you to Africa or Indonesia or Baxter or wherever he called you to. And he, can, he, he, he saw in you the greatness you couldn't see for yourself. But all this should encourage us that he wants to use us 
to build up a holy habitation for God in the Spirit. And any church that has the presence of God has tapped into these, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Any church that lacks the presence of God, you got flim-flam, lackadaisical, 16 types of lumber, 16 types of timber, no real standard on what we're going to do to build with. So you got some pine, some oak, some cypress. It's all over the place. Half of it's brick, half of it's cinder block, half of it's polyester. It's all over the place. God has a standard. We aim for that standard that we might be a holy habitation for God in the Spirit. It's a high standard if you didn't know. And it doesn't leave you alone if you didn't know. And we ought to say, thank God, he doesn't leave us alone. Because we all need work. We all need chiseling. We all need fixing. But when it's all said and done, it smells like cedar to God, a sweet-smelling savor that's beautiful to him. Amen?